Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. On today's show, we're looking at issues facing women in the law. We'll be joined by senior reporter Natalie Rodriguez to discuss Law360's annual glass ceiling report, which shows that women are still underrepresented at law firms, especially in leadership roles. Then later in the show, we'll be joined by attorney Carrie Campbell, who will tell us about her experience filing a high-profile gender bias lawsuit against Chadbourne and Park. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. That was a very aggressive hello, hello. Look, uh, aggressive aggressive times call for aggressive hello, hellos. Yeah. Well, speaking of aggressive things, the news has been aggressive this week, and we're devoting our entire show to talking about um, women in the law, so mm-hmm. we don't have time for a lot of other stuff, but I think we wanted to mention just a couple of things. A couple of things. Uh, the high court was busy. Uh, I Again, I've lost track of how many times we've talked about uh, you know, class action waivers and arbitration clauses and yes. things like that. But it turns out, according to the Supreme Court, those things are entirely legal. Uh, in, the, in the case Epic, uh, yeah. which, which we've talked about before, uh, they basically sort of enshrined the right of employers to put uh, class waivers, which uh, basically, you know, shut down uh, an employee's right to bring class actions for wage and hour disputes. So, Yeah, this is an important one. Um, it was penned by Justice Gorsuch. Yeah. Um, it was a very strong ruling. And then... It was the one that was like awaiting his seat, oh, yeah. too. 5-4 along clean party and lines. And like very much his... Shtick. Yeah. Right? And then, of yeah. course, Ginsburg came out yeah. wearing her dissent collar, her yeah. jabot, yeah. and she read from the dissent and did the, the yeah, whole yeah. thing. So there was a, a lot in dispute here. And this is actually interesting to talk about on the day when we talk about women in the law. Right. Mm-hmm. Because not being able to bring suits collectively mm-hmm. could also impact some of these issues related to um, discrimination and bias. Yeah, so lots of good coverage on that. We wrote, we wrote a million features. Vin and Braden were very busy. I encourage everyone to go check them out. And then yesterday, there was a big ruling that the president uh, was violating the First Amendment by blocking people on Twitter. Nice. Which, I, you know, I mean... <laughs> So you're free to send your dank memes to uh, yeah. at real Donald Trump again. That's the really takeaway. I mean, he had blocked, a, you know, quite a few people. Yeah. So this is right. a really interesting one. So a, a public advocacy group uh, filed a lawsuit claiming that that was a violation of the First Amendment, that this right. is, that his feed is a public forum uh, yeah. for First Amendment purposes. And on Wednesday, the a New York federal judge agreed. And there were some arguments about whether or not because it was the president, it was something different or then because- for other government officials. Exactly. Or, yeah. And she said that that's not the case. Yeah, it was an interesting examination of like, I mean, you know, the- of the First Amendment in in the Twitter era, right? You know, so when when it when something becomes a public forum, sure. and what is speech and all this stuff, all these like these are normal First Amendment questions. But, well, yeah, and and just in the Twitter, uh, like in the in the realm of social media, yeah. there was a whole discussion about um, the difference for First Amendment purposes between muting I and know. blocking. Yeah. So really <laughs> right. interesting stuff. And then I thought the most interesting muting is part, okay, right? Muting was say? fine. Yeah. And the most interesting part was, uh, well, and they talked about um, like retweeting and uh, quote tweets versus like, it's very interesting ruling. You should go check it out. But there was a part about remedies. And the judge said, for right now, I'm just going to issue a declaratory judgment because I assume that the president doesn't think he's above the law and will follow this <laughs> ruling. So it'll be interesting to see Extremely what happens. Extremely interesting. Right. <laughs> Next week, Law360 will release its annual glass ceiling report, a look at the progress of women in the law. 
Like last year, and the one before that, and the one before that, and even the one before that, the results aren't great. After a year that was dominated by tales of systemic gender inequality, and after many years of law firms promising real action on stubborn imbalances, Law 360's survey once again reveals that progress was incremental at best. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by a former big law attorney who saw bias firsthand. But our first guest this week is Natalie Rodriguez, senior reporter here at Law360, who's going to break down the report for us. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, thanks for having me. So another sad year. Yeah, great. You come bearing great news once again. As uh, per always. Yeah, right. Well, tell us sort of a summary of the top line of what we found this year. Sure. So what we found this year is what we've pretty much found for the last five years almost. <laughs> um, you know, for for a long time, women have made up almost half of law school graduates. Mm-hmm. But the, the numbers just don't show up when you're looking at law firm ranks. Um, and... You know, 35% of all attorneys are women. Most of those are non-partners, you know, and when you get up to the partnership and uh, equity partner ranks, it's even worse, um, you know, and, and, and the the growth just has been very minimal. I mean, in the last three years, we've seen like about a percentage point of growth in the partner and equity partner ranks. Um, yeah, I remember um, we talked about the glass ceiling report on the show last year, and you know, we try to give some hope saying like, well, there's people that have some ideas about how to make some real inroads into this problem. It doesn't sound like much happened over the last 12 months. Well, you know what? Uh, from 2016 to 2017, the percentage of female equity partners went from 19.9% to about 20.7%. So that's at I, least I mean, it broke the 20% mark. It's going in the right direction, but it's <laughs> right. going so slowly. <laughs> Very slowly. One would hope that it would speed up a bit, but... Yeah. Um, now, in, in, alongside these sort of maybe not so rosy stats that you broke down for us, you did offer some glimmers of good news of women who the, the few women who have actually risen to you know the highest ranks of power in these big law firms, uh, especially um, there was an attorney you talked to, Julie Jones at Ropes and Gray, who had some some interesting stories to share. Can you can you tell us uh, tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. Julie Jones, she just became chair elect at Ropes and Gray back in November. She'll be taking up the helm in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so great to speak with her and, and kind of get this perspective of uh, someone up and coming, um, you know, when she when the release came out about her election she within the hour she got messages and emails from other women chairs and managing partners across the country you know with welcome to the club messages <laughs> right welcome to the club let's try and make it a little bigger maybe i yeah. mean is the club of these women in this in these high positions bigger or smaller than the five timers club on snl right yeah, i don't know i mean it's can't it's gotta be or close. On pro se for that matter but, <laughs> right yeah. well it's pretty small it's you know out of the 300 about 350 firms that we surveyed we only got uh, about 43 saying that they had a female chair or managing partner or like commensurate position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's a select small group and they really, you know, reached out to, to Jones with messages of encouragement saying, you know, we're here for you if you have any questions. Um, and actually a few weeks after she got elected, uh, about a dozen of them got together with her in Manhattan at a restaurant, um, kind of a celebratory dinner. Nice. Um, and, you know, just talking about their own stories in the business about, you know, how it's a lonely position. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just, you know, what what big legal industry issues should be top of mind when mm-hmm. you're taking the helm. Um, Julie Jones, she, she said, you know, she, she really was so overwhelmed by all the positive energy from everyone. And she said she could have 
spoken with them for like eight hours, but eventually, <laughs> yeah. like around midnight, the the, lo- the restaurant staff is yeah. like, okay, I think we need to close. Yeah. So the story with Julie Jones was a really positive one, and and it paints honestly a, a, a rosier picture than I think some of the stats in in our story do. And and I thought some of the, I mean, they were sort of dark stories that that of of you know what some of these female attorneys who are now in positions of power went through earlier in their career, I thought were, were really powerful. And I know we have a little bit of the audio from some of your your conversations with these people. I didn't know if you wanted to walk us through um, any of the, you know, some of the horror stories here. No, for sure. I mean, so many of these women are of an age where they were literally the only women in the room when they started. Yeah. Um, you know, they, 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 the all too typical story of being uh, mistaken for a court reporter right. Or, right. or for a flight attendant on a business trip uh, because they were only women there. I like um, your anecdote about being in a sea of 300 Navy blazers yeah. in the conference yes. room. <laughs> yeah. Literally the only managing partner at a managing right. partner conference who was a woman. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and some of them are, are really, uh, you know, pretty hard to hear Jamie McKean, the chair of Morgan Lewis and Bacchus, you know, she had a pretty terrible story about a a time when she was a young attorney going up in front of a judge. I had a judge who told me the first time I tried a case in front of him that he, when he was a prosecutor, he used to like to try cases against women because he liked to see how long it took him to make them cry. And he was going to see if he could make me cry. And I said, Your Honor, you're not going to make me cry. Oh, guys. It's hard to I hear. Mean, well, it's all the women listening to this. Now we all want to cry. It's terrible. It's yeah. just outrageous. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, it was just one of many stories I heard from all these sure. women leaders, um, you know, and, and and some of them looking back at their careers, they're, they're shocked at what they were willing to put themselves through sometimes even to just, just to stay in the law, which mm-hmm. was, you know, their, their main goal. Uh, Kim Coopersmith, the, the chair of Aiken Gump, she, you know, she remembers a time when she was just preparing to have her kids and she had a like many she had to put together her 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 own maternity policy when i first had kids and i wanted to work on a reduced workload basis i proposed to my law firm that i would work 80 percent and i asked to be paid 60 percent and at the time that i just felt so grateful if they would let me continue on something other than full-time that i was willing to take a pretty significant pay cut beyond what would be commensurate with how hard I was working. Um, that is just not the case anymore, right? That would never happen. And I mostly just look back and feel like I can't believe that that seemed normal to me a long time ago. I can't believe that felt normal to her Ooh. either. But it really speaks to how a lot of this systemic bias seeps in not just with the men that are right. in power, but with the women who are enduring these problems. No, for sure. And, and you know, now when they're le- as leaders of these law firms, these women are really trying to just offer more opportunities for women. You know, um, Marcy Eisenstein, the, the managing partner of, of Schiff Harden, you know, she's been the senior most woman in her law firm for about two decades mm-hmm. because she was just the one that didn't leave, right. um, you know, and, and she knows that in some ways that created opportunities for her. Um, and, and, you know, like she said, she, she, you know, she walked through the door and she took those opportunities. And now, uh, you know, a lot of these these women leaders, they're they're working on business development programs, uh, work assignment systems for younger attorneys, you know, to, to really help 
women uh, get more opportunities. And, and, and they're also doing training to, to work on, um, you know, implicit bias issues, just like Stasia Kelly, the managing partner of the, uh, uh, the U.S. managing partner for DLA Piper. The first training was unconscious bias. And it, it was amazing at how many of the lawyers, and particularly the men, were like, oh, wow. I could see myself actually doing that without thinking about it, you know, interviewing the, the summer associates that you end up, the men end up just talking about the baseball, football, whatever, right? And the diverse young woman has no touchstone with any of these subjects and figuring out how not to do that is huge. That's so important because it's like, like we were saying before, you know, not, not everybody will come off as, you know, kind of outlandish and maybe like downright evil as this as this judge uh, that 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 the attorney was talking about before. But there are, there are things that can creep in, like we right. say, that's why it's called unconscious bias training, right? That sort of create an architecture for stuff like this to perpetuate itself. Is there anything else that these women that you spoke to that they're working on that any other um you know, projects or tactics that they're taking to address this problem? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, are doing what e other firms, even, you know, metal firms are doing in terms of remote working and, um, you know, better parental leave policies. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, some of these firms have really, the ones led by women have really been at the forefront of that because they know it's about retaining female attorneys and, and not letting, you know, a hardship uh, during a, you know, a, a, a life event, uh, you know, force them out of the path. And didn't you have, was, wasn't there data we looked at that, that like suggested a high correlation between firms led by women and women attorneys sort of filling out the lower ranks too that happened right yeah no so so uh women-led firms uh definitely have greater numbers of women attorneys throughout all ranks and actually the the biggest significance is i think in the partner level yeah. where yeah. you know male-led firms kind of average about 20 percent when it comes to women partners mm -hmm. whereas women-led firms average 25 oh. percent and you know it, it's, it's not you know a, a, a huge difference but when you're talking about a data that's only been creeping up at like right. less than a percentage point every year for like the last five that's, years that's or so. That's half a decade ahead, right there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, that's not chump change right, to have twenty five percent equity yeah. partners, women. So, do we think now? I mean, a lot of the things you've talked about in terms of tactics and things that women are doing to bring up women that are below them in the ranks and and get them more engaged. Do we think this is a lot now? Just pushing forward incrementally over a long period of time because these seem like the kind of things they were also talking about last year and we didn't see a big bump. It's, it, and that's true. Um, and I think a lot of the women leaders see this as a long haul kind of mission yeah. for themselves. You know, Lisa Mayhew, she is the co-chair of Brian K. Bladen Paisner, actually joining Terry Pritchard after the recent merger of the firm with uh, Brian K. with Berwyn Leighton uh, Paisner, uh, now two women at the head of a of a major law firm. You know, she's told me she thinks this phenomenon and this experience takes time to move the needle on. And I have to imagine that a lot of it is not just plan and not just uh, structures, but it's execution. It's making sure that these that these uh, rules and and systems and everything else that you put in place are followed and are that, that they that they are something that anyone that, can make a committee exactly for something right. de, exactly but de facto practice. 
is more important than mm -hmm. what's on the page. Which is why a lot of them are, are really starting to focus on workplace assignments. Mm -hmm. um, now, those tend to be for junior level attorneys, uh, young associates, where they're they're for both men and women, they're looking at what they're spending their time on to just make sure that no one's not getting an opportunity to take a deposition right. or, or, you know, not uh, getting an opportunity to work with different partners. And, and, you know, just because sometimes implicit bias seeps in. And I thought your story did such a good job of hitting at it's not about having, you know, a list and making sure that it's 50-50. Yeah. It's, it's much more complex than that it's more it's more nuanced than that exactly all these women you know they they, they made a point to to say that it, it's not really about checking off a diversity check right. mark um you know they're not putting women on uh, committees or they're not putting women on uh pitch teams just to put women on there they're it's more about making sure that the women who do have the same skills and the same uh you know work product or books of business are getting the same opportunities as the men that leaves us in such a nice, hopeful place, which is great um, after these bleak statistics. Thanks for being with us, Natalie. Thanks for having me. And everybody stick around to our next interview when we're going to hear about how some of this has played out in the real world. attorney Carrie Campbell brought a suit against the firm where she was a partner, Chadbourne & Park, alleging the firm had a boys' club culture that led it to pay women less than men. The firm settled with Campbell and two other women last month, agreeing to pay them $3.1 million. Here to talk about what the case means for women in the law is Carrie Campbell. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. I'm so glad you're here to talk about these challenges facing women in the legal profession. Can you tell us a bit about the problems you were facing at Chadbourne and why you thought a lawsuit was necessary? Well, I don't want to go into um, specific things about Chadbourne, but I can tell you why I thought a lawsuit was necessary in broad strokes and why I decided that this was a decision I was going to make. And that is because gender inequality in big law in terms of pay, power, and promotions has literally been a problem for decades. Decade after decade, study after study, we receive confirmation that is in the media, in the news, that we have a big gender disparity problem in big law. Nevertheless, despite this sad fact that everyone knows and has documented, and it's a well-understood problem, the needle hasn't moved. We haven't made progress in any appreciable way in decades. And I decided that's not acceptable. Enough is enough. We have to do something. So personally, I had to ask myself, how can I make a difference for the good? What am I going to do about it? Am I going to just keep my head down and pretend this doesn't exist? Maybe move on to another firm, hope things will be better somewhere else? Right. And I just decided against these options, and I'm sure many women have asked themselves the same question. But what I realize is none of those options will ever lead to positive change for me or for other women in the legal industry. So in my particular situation, 
because I had 30 years of big law experience, mm-hmm. I felt very strongly that I had to stand up for myself and all that I'd worked for in all those years and take a stand for other women who couldn't or wouldn't challenge business as usual for so many reasons. So personally, I believe the lawsuit was absolutely necessary. I'm very glad that I brought it and that other women joined me. I applaud them very much and their courage. And I think it's an example that the collective is more powerful than any one individual. I'm very grateful to those women. I'm actually glad that you mentioned your considerable legal experience before you decided to bring legal action, because one of the things that kept popping up in our reporting both on your lawsuit and then its its ripple effects throughout the community is that one of the reasons that this problem persists is that there can there can come about um, basically like an institutional fear of like repercussions from challenging decisions like this, whether it's like, you know, a black mark on your record that keeps you from working elsewhere. Um, you yourself, of course, were eventually let go from Chadbourne. Did you anticipate running into problems like that? And if so, I mean, how, how did you strike the balance of saying, well, it's worth the risk? Well, first of all, I think everyone who is in a position of trying to decide what they want to do if they're faced with uh, harassment or abuse or discriminatory conduct, they need to take into consideration that there are very real and significant consequences, and we can't downplay them. And Mm -hmm. I think that is why we're in a culture, at least in the big law, industry where there is literally a pall over any discussion of this issue. And it's sort of that if someone dares to open their mouth even, never mind bring a lawsuit or uh, make a big challenge, if anyone even opens their mouth about the issue, I think there is legitimate concern that there's going to be a backlash. So some of the very real possible consequences are a backlash, are, in a, in a word, retaliation. Yeah. That's the big thing. Will you be retaliated against? And if so, what form will that take? And it can take any number of forms that are pretty overt, such as being demoted, being fired, having your pay cut, having your pay cut off, yeah. <laughs> which is the worst-case scenario. And then other things like being ostracized or shunned or shut out yeah, or you get, you, get, you get ushered away from the big cases or whatever it might be yeah exactly mm-hmm. uh, so all of yeah. that you know every person who is in this situation does need to carefully evaluate what the consequences could be because they are real you know before we talk a little bit more um about you know the, the outcome of the case and, and what's next for you. I'm curious, you know, you already referenced this is a problem that persists in basically every corner of the American economy. And I'm just curious to know if you, I mean, I know you brought the suit to, to, to make a change, but now that you're in something of an advocacy role, I'm curious to know if you have an idea of like a diagnosis for a problem like this, how you think this comes about and whether or not you think the legal profession is sort of I don't know, creates a specific environment for this kind of thing to take root? I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. I'm glad you asked that question because as I've gone through the litigation and through this process and continued my efforts to advocate on this issue, it's become pretty clear to me that the pervasiveness of the problem, I think, comes down to two things as a fix, transparency and accountability. Mm -hmm. 
And there are a lot of things that can go in those buckets, the buckets of transparency and accountability. But I think what has facilitated and fostered this huge problem that is across industries in America is the fact that there isn't transparency, there isn't accountability, there is a lack of public scrutiny, and transparency is the best, I think, remedy. And whether it's through litigation, access to the courts, whether it's to being outed in a way that exposes you to the court of public opinion, it seems to me that in instance after instance, we see the most effective and efficient change when there's a public scrutiny and that's a powerful tool, yeah. but I think the legal industry is the biggest secrecy club on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Carrie, that actually leads me to my next question. When you filed um, your lawsuit, it was originally a $100 million proposed class action. And then over the course of the years of the litigation, the ultimate settlement was about $3.1 million. Do you consider that a big success still since the suit started so large? Um, because I'm sure there's the other intangible benefits of having drawn this out into the public light. Sure. Well, let me answer that question. And first, let me clarify that the $3.1 million settlement that was reported in the press is exclusively for the Equal Pay Act claim of each individual plaintiff. And that's part of the public court filing. As also noted in the court filings, all of the other claims in the lawsuit were subject to a separate non-public settlement, the details of which I'm not at liberty to discuss. So what I can say is that in my view, the lawsuit was a tremendous success, not only for the excellent result for the plaintiffs, but as importantly, because it brought the subject of gender inequality in the legal industry truly to the forefront, I think in a way that hadn't occurred before. The lawsuit has drawn widespread attention. It has sparked important public dialogue in law firms, in law schools, in the media. Yeah, it's definitely got our attention. I'm excited about that. I believe the lawsuit has inspired other women to stand up for their rights and to take a public stand against gender inequality. And to me, that's a great outcome. Now, your the, the, the filing of your actual case kind of predated um, the very high-profile um, events of last year with the Me Too movement and things like that. Um, but it all kind of coalesced as that stuff was going on in the culture at large. And as you already hinted at, um, there have been other firms like Proskauer Rose, Ogletree Deacons, uh, Steptoe, have faced similar suits like this. I don't know if you feel comfortable. I don't know how you comfortable you feel characterizing your specific suit as um, kind of a bellwether here, but do you see any indication of a sea change for equal pay in the in the legal uh, profession? I think that could be right, and that's exciting, an exciting development, too. I think this trend, this trend of women coming forward and being willing to exercise their rights, access the courts, and bring this to the fore, this trend shows how essential, first of all, it is for us to have access to the courts right. and to litigate these matters in public with transparency, accountability to the court, accountability to the law, and almost as importantly, subject to public scrutiny. Again, this goes back to transparency being an effective, very effective means of getting us to accountability and making law firms take a look at their own practices and if nothing else, try to avoid the risk of being a defendant in 
a gender discrimination lawsuit because there is a lot of risk and exposure. You don't want to be there. So let's imagine that there's um, attorneys that work at some big firms out there listening right now, and they don't want to be the next firm on the hook for a big suit like this. Do you have any concrete advice for steps they can take to make sure that they are creating an environment where there's more parity between men and women? Beyond waiting to be named as a defendant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's the greatest strategy. Yeah, okay. It's a very well, expensive yeah. and risky one. And I think law firms, it's interesting, law firms are typically so risk averse, but boy, are they sitting ducks, it seems to me, unless someone gets their hands around this problem. So first, it's just essential to acknowledge the problem instead of dismissing it. And I believe, based on my experience, there are actually firms and firm leaders who refuse to even talk about it and don't think it exists or think not at this firm, sure. not in 2018, and that's nonsense. So where the firms and firm leaders simply refuse to face facts and reality, I think that they are uh, facing risk. And that's risk that could be eliminated if they would only step up and change that culture. Don't be afraid to take the issue head on. Don't try to sweep it under the rug. Don't just speak about it in hushed tones in one secret room. But get it out there. Get to the heart of the problem. Look at the facts. And one way to do that is to intentionally and thoughtfully evaluate the firm's own track record. This isn't rocket science. It's math and statistics, and any firm can do that. You take the compensation. You look at the attorneys, whatever level it's at, and you you could even do it blind and then put the names in. But there are certain compensations. There are certain bonuses. Certain people are given the power, the promotions. Inventory that. Evaluate that. Run the statistics and see if there's a huge disparity. There are purportedly some very smart people in these buildings. So yeah, I think that uh, could do that. I, I, I think you're right about sort of using um, using your intellectual capital in that way. I think that's why. I mean, it is the brain trust, right? So yeah. it's kind of silly to just not look at the facts instead of talking about it and wondering. It, you get down to the facts. You look at it. There are other things, too, if I may. <laughs> yeah, I without a doubt. I think it would be terrific if law firms would be called out for whether or not they require their attorneys to sign mandatory arbitration agreements to give up their rights to court access in order to work at the law firm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just outrageous? We've, we've talked about that several times uh, in, in different contexts, including the legal context on this very show. So, yes. It's a really important topic that I don't think a lot of people talk about that much or realize the significance of until there's this violation of your rights and you realize that you don't have access to the courts. And in my own homework on this topic, and as I want to continue to advocate for equality in the workplace, I was absolutely shocked to find out a couple of studies that show, uh, among other things, that some 60 million American workers have given up their or have been denied, let me say, their yeah. access to sports because as a condition of their employment, they need to, they're asked to sign on to these agreements. And frankly, if you don't sign on to them, you don't get a job. So I don't think it's a voluntary thing. And then let me just go on. So how do law firms discriminate in other ways? Let yeah. me count the ways. <laughs> let me just ask some questions. And this really gets into the sort of non-obvious things that really do create tremendous disparities. 
Who gets the best support and staffing on matters? Who receives the lion's share of client development dollars? Who's the recipient of the most marketing dollars at the firm? Who has the team of associates writing articles, chapters, and books that the partner gets credit for? Who are the practice chairs? Who are the managing partners? And even who sits in the primo offices? These yeah. are all different indices of how people are treated. This definitely seems like, Carrie, you've given a great laundry list for attorneys um, to look at at their firms if they want to see what changes they can make. Well, and I had a question um, just because you had said, yeah, uh, you, you had said that, you know, comparing pay disparity is a relatively simple task. I mean, how do you go about doing, uh, t- assessing sort of less, like more subtle uh, instances of discrimination like you just listed off? Well, I put it in terms of words you can understand, but again, it comes down to facts and figures. It's math. You look at the marketing budget. You look at the client development dollars. You look at the floor plan. You look at how many people have a title and who has the title, and it's not a subjective analysis. Mm -hmm. None of these things are subjective analyses. They are objective, and anybody can go in, and so... You could wait until you're in the crosshairs of very high-profile litigation that I would imagine no firm wants and have someone as part of equitable relief come in and do a gender equity analysis, or you could do it yourself proactively, which I think is a great way to go. So, Carrie, you've laid out a lot of what this problem is and how firms can be looking at it. But also, we have a lot of female attorneys and law students who are listening to the show. And I'd love to hear what advice you have for them as maybe they're younger in the profession, sort of some words of wisdom from your experience. Well, I would say, first and foremost, to realize as young entering, young, you know, young professionals entering the market and as law students at potentially high profile, high power law schools, you've got tremendous market power, mm-hmm. tremendous market power. And I would suggest greater market power to make an impact on this problem than attorneys who are in there for six years or seven years or trying to make partner. Because you can ask the hard questions and the fair questions, the simple, straightforward questions for transparency and disclosure as part of the hiring process. Why not ask law firms, what's your track record on pay? What's your track record? What do you require in terms of mandatory arbitration? Do I need to sign away my legal rights to work at your firm? And other, other things that I could go on about. I love leaving it there, Carrie, with us giving some um, advice to, to young women and telling them they really do have power over the profession that they're going to enter. They have great power. Yeah, thanks so much, Carrie. It's been great talking to you about this experience. I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gary. Bye now. That'll wrap up our show for this week. We want to thank a lot of people, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests, Natalie Rodriguez and Carrie Campbell, and all the team at Law360 that worked on the glass ceiling report. If you want to know more about that report, you can find it on our website at law360.com. We also have a special video that goes along with the package, so you're going to want to check that out. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. 
And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks, and join us again next week.